This week's episode of the Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. To get a 30-day trial complete with a free audiobook download, visit secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible. Sometimes the really good deep work takes time. It takes time in the creative process. It takes time in the production process and putting it out into the world. Welcome to the Secret Library Podcast, the truth about writing books. This is episode 101, and my guests this week are Ezzy Spencer and Megan O'Connell. And we have some announcements, the first of which is that the workshop that I am running in October in Portland with former podcast guest Tasha Harrison and Kate Newberg is open now for registration for Early Bird. You can check out the retreat and get information about it, as well as sign up for the early bird, which is available for the first 20 people who join us at secretrightaway.com. Also, I want to let you all know that I am almost fully booked for individual coaching clients, but I do have one more slot open if anyone's been thinking about working with me. You can learn more about how to sign up and book your consult to talk to me about whether coaching's a fit for you at carolinedonahue.com the brand spanking new website number two, along with the new podcast site. So I want to thank everybody for being so incredibly supportive about the new sites and also for giving us a lot of love over at the new Patreon, which you can check out at patreon.com slash secret library. So our new Patreon supporters this week are Tasha, Dahl, Stephen, and Melissa. So thank you all so much for supporting the show and being a part of the community. If anyone else is interested in joining, you get a shout out on the show and you get to have access to exclusive content like knowing who the guests are going to be a month in advance, being able to submit questions at certain levels, and also you can get weird rants like me going on for 45 minutes about all the amazing stuff that happened at the LA Times Festival of Books, which is available to all subscribers now. Um, I want to thank everybody for their amazing tweets and comments and supportive shares on Twitter. I want to share a few that came through recently. One from Rachel Lyon, um, who is the author of Self-Portrait with Boy, and who says, thanks so much for reading. I'm glad Self-Portrait with Boy snuck up on you too, to me and Mary Laura Philpott. Um, Sarah Campbell says, whoop and whoop for your podcast as well, which was really great. Also, B. Dazzle said about episode 99, love Longworth series and love the interview. Many thanks to both of you. Um, JLM McCanvas said about the episode, which was retweeted and resupported with Paul McVeigh. Um, brilliant and so generous. I've been thinking about the podcast all day. It really is one of the best writing podcasts I've ever heard. I think every writer should hear this and anyone who loves books. Thanks so much to have discovered your podcast. So thank you all so much for being so generous. It really means the world to hear from you that you're listening to the show and that it's enjoyable. So I want to give a special shout out as well to our insane connections we've had in the last week. We found out that Barack Obama is following on Twitter. So Barack, if you're listening, you have an open invite to come on and talk about any of your books or anything you want. And the same goes to Juno Diaz, who we were thrilled to meet at the LA Times Festival of Books. And who, upon being presented with our card, said, I know you guys, keep going. So again, Juno, if you're listening, we would love to have you come on down. And everybody else who's listening, it means the world to hear from you on Twitter. You can tweet to me at Caro Donahue. You can also check us out on Facebook 
or on Instagram, also at Caro Donahue. On Facebook, we are the Secret Library Podcast. You can also show your support by leaving a rating or review on iTunes, which really does make an enormous difference in terms of people being able to find the show. So enough of all that junk. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you. And let's get on with the actual show. My first guest today is Ezzy Spencer, who some of you will remember from back when she was on in episode 42. She is an author and creator of Lunar Abundance. She's the host of a podcast also, and she's the author of the books Lunar Abundance, Cultivating Joy, Peace, and Purpose Using the Phases of the Moon, and An Abundant Life Flourishing with the Cycles of the Moon. She has a background in the law, holds a PhD in therapeutic jurisprudence, and women's well-being. Together with Tracking the Moon Cycle, this was her entry into the importance of the emotional realm, which she continues to explore through her work today. As the creator of Lunar Abundance, a lunar-inspired holistic self-care practice, as he helps tens of thousands of women around the world cultivate self-worth, creativity, and confidence in a playful way. So I was thrilled to have Ezzy back on because when she was on, you know, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, she was working on distributing her book, Lunar Abundance, internationally. She had sold it to an Australian publisher and was publishing it there, but was looking forward to options of distributing the book in the U.S. So now that the book is out in the U.S., we wanted to chat again and talk about the process of how she chose to go with traditional publishing when initially she thought she would self-publish, what made her go with an Australian publisher, and what allowed her to find the right home for her book in the U.S. So for anyone who's writing in a variety of markets, wants to put their book out in more than one place, is interested in rights, all those kinds of things, Um, Ezzy's background in the law, as well as her connection with the more um, emotional side of things through her lunar abundance practice will be a great resource. So here we go with Ezzy Spencer. Hey, Ezzy, thanks so much for coming on. It is so fun to be back here with you. I know, I love I love having people back because I'm like, ooh, we talked about this before, We're good. let's get into it. Because one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about, given that Lunar Abundance came out in Australia a while ago, is now out many other places. I wanted to talk about the fact that you've had to talk about this book for a long period of time. And then as we've talked, you've also been working on other projects. And I'm really interested in how you maintain the kind of marketing enthusiasm kind of buzz about a book that you worked on a long time ago for the amount of time you need to. And how do you take care of yourself as you're starting to look forward towards writing something else? It's such a good question. And I feel like it has been an unexpected element of the journey in a way and I think this is particularly true for any of us who are used to operating in the online world where things move so fast and so you can move quickly along with those things and many of the time frames are really within your command and so when working with a traditional publisher and working on traditional publishing time frames that those timeframes are completely and absolutely out of your control. And so there has been a real element of needing to make peace and to practice patience and just to be able to relax into timing, which is 
divine. I mean, I'm a big believer in the, the, the divine timing of things, but it certainly wouldn't have been the way that I would have set it up myself at the beginning if I had had the choice. But then having said that, I feel like it has unexpectedly provided me with the space that I've needed to process and digest along the journey. And I can speak into that if you're, um, if you're interested as well. I totally am. Yeah, cool. So I, well, the first thing I'd say is that the Lunar Abundance book, which came out in Australia now over a year ago and came out in the US a few weeks ago and came out in the UK last week, is a personal practice of mine. So it's a practice I've been following for 10 years and I'm very intimately connected with the practice itself. So it wasn't like it was just an idea and I had the idea and I wrote the book and then the book was out and I was onto the next idea. It's still a practice which I have integrated into my daily life. So firstly, I think that really helps that intimate connection with the subject matter of the book. But the second part of it is that I had put when the book came out in Australia, you know, and I was very excited and I did the live uh, book tour around Australia and did uh, uh, the virtual book tour around podcasts and 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 the blogs as well. Um, and then I had this extremely long period of a year before the book came out internationally. And so I really had a period of time in that year where I thought to myself, oh my goodness, like, what am I going to, what am I going to do? Like, I want to start talking about other things in this time, because whilst lunar abundance is still very much part of my personal practice, I'm learning about other things that I want to be talking about as well. And so it was a, a really interesting time for me where I had to really make peace as I mentioned before, with the fact that this was a time frame that was out of my control. And so I couldn't really do much about it. I was absolutely delighted that I got a US book deal. Um, and I took the opportunity to have a break from really talking about what it is that I'd been talking about publicly really for about seven years at that point. And that ended up being the best thing that could have happened because then after I'd had that break and I came back into doing the promotional interviews for the book, which started up a few months ago before the book came out in the US. And then I've now been on a book tour around the US. I came back to it with a real zest and I think an added depth of experience and learning and embodiment of the practice in my own life in a way where I guess I felt like I was so glad that I had a little bit of time to take a break and could come back with an enthusiasm that matched the enthusiasm of people who were just finding out about the practice for the very first time right now. That's amazing. I think that's important. I mean, it's this whole tension between sort of traditional publishing and entrepreneurship and independent publishing and, you know, deciding how people want to put their book out and how they want to reach people and how they want their message to get there. And the way that you have to relate to the book, you know, in your own head and as you're writing it and also how you relate to it once it's out in the world and you're relating to it as something that other people engage with. And I feel like what was really healthy in that period of time where I took 
a break from talking about it and took a break from doing, you know, regular events and regular teaching with it, with the practice was that I guess I feel like my boundaries with the project changed. So when the book came out in Australia a year ago and when I was, you know, initially teaching it, the book felt very much like my baby, you know, it felt like my creative project and I had a very enmeshed relationship with the subject matter taking a break from it and the break wasn't all that long you know and in my time frame it felt like a century at the time and I actually didn't really know that I would ever have that zest for it again and all this I mean in the sense that it was still part of my you know intimate daily personal practice but I didn't know I'd have the zest to speak publicly about it in the way that's really come to me uh come through for me in 2018 with the U.S. book release but I feel like the um the boundaries are now very healthy boundaries that I have between this book and myself and that it is one small expression of me at a point of time and an, ex- an expression of my own experience and knowledge and skills and and the application of all of that at one point in time. But I don't feel the same kind of attachment to to, to lunar abundance and needing it to be perceived in a certain way or understood in a certain way or for people to love it as much as I loved it as I did um, even a, a year ago when when the Australian when I was touring the Australian book. That's so interesting because I think that to love something enough to write a book about it, you have to be really excited about it. And at the same time, you do have to let it go when you publish it. And that's so tough. I don't know. I mean, I think it's the idea of boundaries with your book is such an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really necessary. Yeah, because I'm a big believer in that idea that each you know, creative uh, project that you have is really its own thing. It has its own essence and that it chooses you as the vehicle and the conduit through which it's going to be expressed in the world in the very particular way that you as a you know, person with your eyes and the way that you are in the world um, are able to translate it or communicate it or bring it to life. You know, I'm a big believer in that idea. So then to follow on logically from that, I guess, if this book, you know, for me, which I believe it does, has its own essence and now it's out in the world, it's just going to go and do its own thing. And I can't protect it from people, you know, not being 100% in love with it. You know, I can stand up for it. I can be its advocate and its champion and I can try to, um, you know, explain what it is and why it might be useful or helpful. But I have no investment really in people needing to, um, you know, say, well, this is the way to work with the with the moon, for instance, or or, you know, this is some kind of um, some kind of, of of perfect practice because, you know, it's it just is what it is. And if it contributes something to someone's lives and helps them to you know, create a better life or live with more intuition or creativity or well-being, uh, you know, greater emotional intelligence, all of those things, then I'll be delighted. But my own sense of um, achievement or happiness doesn't rise or fall on that uh, anymore. And I think probably in some you know, in some subtle ways before it, it did. Um, and so I think that, you know, me really separating out and having those healthy boundaries between me and the book just means that it's just, you know, one other 
one other book on the shelf. Um, I happen to really like it and be proud of it, but you know, it just, it is what it is and it will go to wherever it is that it feels called to go to. I mean, it could be one book on the shelf that other people have that they're inspired by, but it may be one book on the shelf of many books that you're going to write. (laughs) I hope so. I mean, the way that you're talking about having a book out there is sort of almost like it's a rite of passage with a particular phase of your life that you've cemented this relationship to lunar abundance with the book. And now in a way you've graduated into a new relationship with it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I feel really lucky that I had this at the time, what was a frustrating stage process in getting it out into the world in the sense that the first book, I only sold the Australia and New Zealand rights. So I actually had a year of people contacting me desperate to want to get the book, but not wanting to pay the shipping fees from Australia, which were actually more than the book itself. So people were saying, hey, how come I have to pay 60 bucks to get this thing? And, you know, I'd be like, oh, gosh, you know, I'm, I think that sounds outrageous. But unfortunately, I don't set the postal rates. So I had this 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 frustration in a way of having this year where I wasn't fully out in the world with the book or I wasn't able to fully champion the book out in the world. So in in retrospect, though, I'm just so grateful to have had that period of time because it allowed me to be pretty like the rite of passage that you spoke about allowed was able to be a very sort of leisurely, almost luxuriously leisurely process as I was able to adjust my relationship with Uh, with lunar abundance uh, in a way that feels much more healthy and sustainable moving forward. Do you have, because speaking about this lag that happened and people wanting to get the book and wanting to be out there and champion it, do you have thoughts for people who are considering placing a book with a publisher now and whether or not you would sell international rights from the get-go or whether you would handle things differently or what suggestions you might have for people coming to market with a book now? It's such an interesting question. And in a way, my experience, which I think we spoke about last time on the podcast, but maybe we didn't speak about the whole, the whole experience last time. So I will just quickly recap. We what were like experience. right up to the LA <laughs> or the right yeah. up to the US distribution. You were like starting to be in talks about US distribution. Oh, yes. Right. Okay. Well, I'll just quickly recap what happened from uh, in my experience, because I think that's going to then be important to, yes, to any please. further guidance that I give, because I did have a very unusual experience. But I think it's illustrative of the fact that anytime you're working with a traditional publisher, it's not going to necessarily be a cookie cutter type experience. And so it is, I think, important to keep that open mind that there's not actually necessarily going to be a formula. Um, So what happened for me is that I had been teaching the Lunar Abundance practice firstly offline and then online uh, for several years. And I know, Caroline, you've done my online program and it was just such a delight to have you in what was a very engaged online community at the time that I was running that program. So I'd worked with hundreds of women intimately with the practice uh, at the time that I started to write the book. And so that meant because I already had an audience, because I was already very uh, familiar with the the topics in the book, I felt very confident around self-publishing. So when I started to write the book, I took myself out 
on a writing retreat to Bali at the start of 2016 and I decided to write the book and then go ahead with self-publishing um, at the time that I finished writing the book. So I booked a, an editor and I went through the editing process with the fantastic Esme Wang, who I believe has also been on the show and it was just such a joy to work with Esme. She has. Um, and then I was going down that road of, of self-publishing and I was actually contacted by an Australian publisher in response to a post I put up on Instagram saying that I was writing a book and I had a publisher, an Australian publisher specifically say, would you like us to, to publish the book? And so that was a curveball for me. I had not thought that I would go down a traditional publishing road purely because I knew how to self-publish and I didn't know what the traditional publishing world looked like. And so I ended up getting into negotiations with them. I got a great deal with them and I thought though at the time I would just sell them the Australian New Zealand rights for the reason that if you know they were if they were interested in the first instance I thought I could still sell self-publish the book internationally outside Australia myself and then I did have an inkling at the back of my mind that then there may be an opportunity to have a, a, a publisher overseas where there are just bigger numbers in Australia. I mean, Australia is such a small, small place. Um, you know, there's only 24 million people in the whole country. Um, it's not the the biggest uh, sort of book buying culture in the world. So I was, was definitely thinking further afield at the time that I negotiated the Australian New Zealand rights with that Australian publisher. Then what happened is that I was approached by, I started being approached actually uh, by agents and by other people who were interested in the US. So this all happened very organically and naturally as I continued to talk about the book and announcing the fact that I had an Australian publisher, people became interested. And I, um, I also was very much working with the Lunar Abundance practice in the whole, uh, in terms of the intention setting and so forth, which we can dive into, into later. So my whole approach is very much about, uh, you know, setting intentions and being very clear about what you want, um, you know, how you want to feel and, 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 and desirable uh, outcomes, but without necessarily sort of being out there chasing it. Um, and so this was very much the way that the entire process worked for me. Then I got an invitation to go over to New York at the end of 2016. So I went over there. I had a number of meetings with agents and prospective publishers. I ended up signing with a fantastic agent and she ended up getting me a book deal pretty quickly with a fantastic US publisher. And so that all happened. Um, it was, you know, February, March of 2017. And that was in basically coincided with the book coming out in Australia, the published date of March 2017. Um, and then the, uh, it took a while to hammer out the deal and, and, you know, in the contract negotiation process with the, with the US publisher, if you, if anyone knows who's gone through that experience, it's not something that happens overnight. So it took a number of months before that was all nailed down. And then the publication date for the US was March, 2018. So that's just a recap of my publishing experience to give some context to, to the, uh, to, to, to any kind of, um, guidance that I would give or how I would consider doing it differently next time. There was a lot of serendipity in it, in other words. So I think that it would be 
tidier to have one publisher and to work with an international book release date that was more consistent in around the world. Um, you know, the UK release date was three or four weeks after the US release date. Um, so that was not such a big deal. But I think, again, having that year lag time was something which without having been through the process before, I didn't realise just what a strain that was going to take from a customer relations perspective, because I really wanted the book to be out too, right? You know, but it wasn't up to me. So I would definitely work towards having a more consistent release date around the world. Um, but in terms of my own process with this particular book, I think part of the appeal for me in the US was that I already had an Australian book deal and I already had a beautifully designed book. And so I wasn't much of a gamble for them because they already had the finished product or very close to finished product. They knew I was a sure thing at the time that they signed me. Um, and that definitely worked in my favor with getting a, um, you know, and getting a, getting a really good deal. The more that that you're able to to be um, consistent with the dates around the world, particularly if you have a global audience, the the easier it's going to be all round. Yeah, that's that's so tricky because the way it happened, there's really not another way it would have gone. I mean, I think the other way it might have gone is if you weren't interested in using the traditional publishing route, and if you just said, you know what, I really wanted to do this myself then you could have done it all at once. But I don't know if the other way it would have worked because you wouldn't have gone straight to New York, probably, it sounds like, with your original plan. Yeah, look, and I, if I was to do one thing differently with the publishing process, it wouldn't, it, sorry, it would have been to more seriously consider traditional publishing from the outset because I've had a fantastic experience with traditional publishing and that's been both in Australia and the US. And I feel like I heard a lot of people speak negatively about traditional publishing and that was one of the reasons why I decided to self-publish and there are absolutely pros and cons for both and I don't think that there's a tidy answer for anybody um, I think it's so context dependent on where you're at what the size of your audience is how much work you want to put into it how much capital you're going to be able to invest in the process up front um, because self-publishing does require more of an upfront financial investment. Um, but I have just been so delighted with traditional publishing that I feel like I could have investigated that as a viable option from the outset, in which case I wouldn't have gone straight to an Australian publisher. I would have gone to the US simply because there's just more readers in the US. True. I mean, just because there's more people. I would have to say everybody I know from Australia is a big reader. Yeah, I mean... That may be just... my self-selection. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that there is a... Um, there's definitely a reading culture here, but it's just a matter of the numbers. You know, you've got a country which is the size of one US state, so you may have a really, you know... <laughs> In terms of population, obviously, the geographical landmass is so much bigger, but that's misleading because it's such a small place. And so there is a real avid, you know, subculture of readers here, but there's just not that many of them. So it is, I think, tough for Australian authors to make a, a living as an author if you're just selling to an Australian audience purely because of numbers. 
Do you find that there is a particular interest in authors from overseas from international publishers? Like that there's like, ooh, an Australian author, that's a very glamorous thing to have, you know, that, that the U.S. was particularly interested in that as coming from a different country. I feel like U.S. publishers are interested, I mean, <laughs> and I can't speak for, for all of them, but the ones that I've had engagement with are, are commercial enterprises and they're interested in commercial outcomes. So I feel like if they think that an author will sell books, then they will get interested in that. And if part of that belief that an author will sell books is because they're a bit exotic in some way, shape or form, then I think that would definitely play into it. I think that where it would work against an author is if they do not have a sizable US audience. And for one reason or another, I've always had people in the US who have been very interested in my work. And so my US audience has been building uh, since the beginning of, of me teaching this online. And so that was certainly a selling point for me, I think, that I had the numbers inside of my own audience to sell the books to, probably more so than being Australian, but that might just be my perception. Well, I think we we are very into at least parts of the US, and there's enough of us that are really into kind of spiritual practice and interest in looking at things from a different perspective. Um, we do have California, so... <laughs> where I am now, who is always interested in that sort of practice. So we're definitely going to be on your side. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there is an openness and a receptivity in the US to, to many um, more progressive ideas and also some, you know, stranger ideas. I think there are some movements which are huge in the US, which would never gain traction in Australia uh, because we tend to be a, um, uh, yeah, I, I feel like we, we're not necessarily as, as enthusiastic about more different and newer ideas here in Australia. But if something takes hold, then Australians are very loyal. And so there is a sense of wanting to follow along with somebody in their career and to support their work over time um there's once it's once it's gained a um a sense of 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 trust in in australia for sure that's so interesting i love these kind of cultural differences one thing that you said earlier that i'm really interested in was you said you were using the lunar abundance practice throughout the sort of writing and publishing process and setting intentions. And we didn't really talk about that last time. So I'd love if you could share a little bit about how you use the process throughout maybe the publishing and promoting of the book process. Oh, definitely. Yes. So a core principle in the Lunar Abundance Practice, which is what the book is all about, is around setting intentions and setting them in a very particular way where they are somatic intentions. They're very much feeling based, meaning that they're linked to the physical sensations in your body. They're linked to elevated emotions like gratitude and joy. And so, um, and, and this is, this is seen in a, that microcosmic element by setting 
an intention at each new moon, which happens once a month, but you can also apply these principles more generally and broadly throughout your life. That's part of the intention of, of the practice is that it is a practice, but, but what you learn through working with the principles of abundance of which intention setting is one has carryover to, to every other part of your life to transform your entire life for the better. And one of the ways that I worked with this intention setting practice in the Lunar Abundance uh, promotion and publicity element uh, piece of the book was to get very clear about what my intention was for the um, well firstly what I wanted my readers to, to feel and to do so that was important as I was going through the writing process so I wanted my readers to feel inspired to create a better life and I wanted them to feel very supported and encouraged and have very practical steps and takeaways to to go from in order to actually put that into action I'm not just about esoteric interesting ideas I'm all about seeing results in your in your life and so and so I was very clear about my intentions for my readers and then the intention for the publication process was that I wanted the book to land in the maximum number of hands of the maximum number of readers who would benefit from the book. And so I set that intention right at the outset as I was actually writing the book as well. So I think the first month of the book writing process was just getting very clear on my intentions and sitting with those intentions every day and moving through any kind of resistance that I had in working with those intentions. So for instance, with this particular book, the I never had intentions like I want to sell, you know, X number of books in week one or, you know, I want to hit the New York Times bestseller list. Like it wasn't ever as tangible as that. It was much more about sitting with this intention of I want this book to land in the maximum number of hands of the maximum number of readers. And I want this to be done in a way which is going to feel easy, which is going to flow, which is going to be joyful and abundant for me as the author and the custodian of the, of the book showing up in the world. And so that was that intention which I set at the very beginning of the process now, which was over two years ago, and I've continued to sit with and be with that intention throughout the entire process of putting it out in the world. And what's great is that obviously I've shown up and I have done the work. So there's been yang periods and I talk about the difference between yin and yang at length in the book as well. And the yang uh, periods are where you are really leaning into that mode of operating, which is much more about taking action. It's about initiating. It's about going out into the world. You know, so I did go to New York and I did you know, set up meetings and I did reach out and I told people that I wanted to get a US book deal when I was on US soil. And so there was obviously elements of the publication process and then also the promotional process where I have been taking action, I have been moving forwards, I have been doing the work. But then there's also been a very strong emphasis on the yin, which is around feeling and being and not getting so attached to having a particular you know outcome you know at, at the end of the day but allowing myself to receive the interest um, that's come to me because of the book uh, allowing myself to receive the interview requests for instance which have come to me because of the book and I've got to say you know probably 80% of the promotional activities I've done with the book have been inbound people have contacted me and so this is very consistent with that yin component of the lunar abundance practice, which is where as you do work with these principles, you do become more magnetic over time. You become more open 
to opportunities and you are able to see and to receive the right invitations when they present themselves to you, particularly when they're in alignment with a greater, more overarching you know, intention uh, for a project. This just feels so much better. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there is often when you're undertaking a large project, this feeling of like, oh, this is going to be a big deal and I'm going to have to work really hard on it. And there's this kind of grippy, grindy feeling that accompanies it. And every time I talk to you, it's a great reminder that you're allowed to not want that and you're allowed to want to do it differently. Yeah, I feel like there's no real rush. You know, I feel like particularly if you write a book which is timeless and this book for me, I wanted this book to be something that readers would have on their bedside tables as a cherished companion over many moon cycles to pick it up and to flick to the full moon chapter and each full moon and to go through the exercises and to, you know, maybe there'll be some moon cycles where it's not really referred to, but then maybe the next year they'll come back to it. And maybe if they follow along with the practice for a moon cycle and see some benefits in their life, then they will say to their, you know, girlfriends next time they're talking about the moon, hey, you know, there's this book that's really helped me. Perhaps you would like to, to read it too. So there was this sense for me of trust in timing and to, to feel like if I wrote a book which was going to be timeless, then there was never going to be a need for it to, you know, have like a massive launch or to, uh, you know, need to hit certain benchmarks at certain times. Um, it could just be a book which could continue to show up in people's lives and meet them when they needed the support that I feel that it can offer them. And I think when you're approaching it from that perspective and thinking, hey, I'm really playing the long game here. I mean, I did a PhD in my 20s, so I feel like that really prepared me for the long game in a way. And to know that sometimes the really good deep work takes time. It takes time in the creative process. It takes time in the production process and putting it out into the world. And maybe it doesn't have a huge fanfare or maybe it does have a celebration, you know, at the time of its publication or at other points along the way. But it's not about needing to push and to stress and to hustle and to put a lot of pressure on particular points in the process. It's around sustainability and enjoyment and flow and integrity and staying aligned to the purpose and why you're doing something and what you hope it will bring of value to your readers' lives. I think that's so important. And it, it reminds me of something I heard in an interview recently with Ryan Holiday. He wrote, he's written several books. One's like The Ego is the Enemy and he started writing about marketing early on, but he did this interview talking about how important it was to think about a book that's sort of the, like you're talking about the long game book. That's not how he phrased it. I can't remember the exact phrasing of it, but he was saying that there are these books that stay interesting to people for a long time, like To Kill a Mockingbird or books that are just always available in the bookstore and they stay there because they're not flash in the pan kind of books. And that, it's such a wonderful thing to shoot for that as your goal. 
And I hadn't really thought about it in publishing that way before, but you're making me think of it again as you bring this up, because we're sort of looking at fast consumption in so many areas of life right now in culture. We look at fast food and how we want to have slower food, and we look at fast fashion and how we want to pick more sustainable things that are you know, mindful of the conditions in which people are working. And I don't think we think about fast books in the same way. So it's very cool for you to think about, you know, it's okay for the process to take longer. It's okay to hang with it. And maybe if you take longer to write the book, people will spend more time with it later. Yeah, I feel like there have been moments in my journey where I've had to check in with myself and think, oh my God, am I doing it right? Because I've had people around me who have had a different approach and they've been very successful. You know, they've had huge launches and big targets and goals and they've hit them and, you know, and that's fantastic, right? You know, it's not like there's necessarily one way is a better than another way. It's just that I feel in terms of my own personality, my own style, my own approach, and also my own message, it wasn't really a fit for me to to go into that. It didn't feel right for me. And it certainly didn't feel right for this particular book, you know, and maybe there'll be other books in my future, which might be different to this, but I feel like there's a real relaxation that comes when you take that pressure off yourself and you focus on doing really good work. And obviously you have to couple that really good work with feeling comfortable about going out into the world and talking about that really good work as well. You know, it cannot just be about the creative process. It also does need to be about the production and the promotional process and the sales process. But I feel like, if you are able to really master your craft and to allow yourself to enjoy the creative process and to go deep and to create that timeless classic and to look at at all of the examples um, out there of people who've created you know really fantastic classic books which haven't necessarily been bestsellers like the first cab off the rank you know haven't sort of had the big launch week and made the right lists and those kind of things but which have been stayers and have continued to make that impact in people's lives because people share it through word of mouth which has always been the best uh sales uh, process, <laughs> at least in my experience, um, because when people are genuinely sharing from the heart with their friends something that they love, of course, people are going to be more receptive and open to that. Um, so certainly, I think focusing on creating something that's really you know beautiful and valuable for people, and I keep coming back to value because I've written a nonfiction book, and so you know that that's been part of the process as well as providing that value to people. But um, you know, knowing as well when when to stop and when to get it out into the world, not being stuck in perfection, um, and feeling okay about sharing a, a, a product at the end of the day because a book is a product. You know, it is a commercial item. It's a very low cost, accessible commercial item. But you need to be okay with sales and marketing uh, as well um, with that. Um, but it just doesn't need to be, in my view anyway, it just doesn't need to be this huge, stressful hustle kind of event not if you've created something that's that that's really good I think it helps too that you've been teaching it and that it was 
material that you were already sharing. And I think it already had the staying power by having sort of been through so many moon cycles with so many people. It feels like it was like warmed up. And the way that you taught it never felt rushed and forced. So I think it would feel weird for those who were familiar with your teaching and your methods if you went from like, all right, feel into your body and see how you feel about this to like, oh my God, we got a big lookbook launch. We got to do this. We're going to hit the numbers. We got this thing on the wall with a big chart. Like it would have felt very strange um, (laughs) given the topic you were talking about and the way that you were writing about it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) I mean, look, there were certainly moments along the way and there's still moments along the way where I check in with myself and I think, God, could I be making you know, a little bit more effort, you know, could I be, could I be doing this in a different way? I feel like that constant self-reflection and self-inquiry is, is, is part of it as well. But yeah, I, I, I appreciate that, that, that feedback. I, <laughs> I don't think I've ever done a chart for the wall. <laughs> I wouldn't know where to start. Oh my goodness. I mean, I'm, don't get me. I mean, I, I love a chart on the wall, but I, I feel like that's your solar goals book, maybe, yes. <laughs> rather than your lunar abundance book. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's, really, that's really true as well, is that there could be space in future for a book with a very different topic, which will have a very different um, birthing process, for sure. Uh, so it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see in, in part, I need to surrender, I feel to, to each project as it comes through because it, it has its own essence and it has its own identity and it will, um, do things in, in the way that it wants, wants to do them. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of trust in the process. <laughs> For sure. So you're about to start a big book tour for your international publication in the US and in in the UK and then what is next for you yeah well I've actually done the US book tour so I am back from that well it I did the you're efficient (laughs) well it was more of a book launch celebration I suppose where I was umming and ahhing about whether I I I should go over uh, because you know authors need to basically self-fund and self-organize book tours in this day and age and this is the case particularly for a first-time author you know the days where a publisher will put on a book tour for a first-time author um if indeed they ever did those days are gone private jet and (laughs) champagne yeah right (laughs) right stadiums um but i had a number of friends and supporters in the US who did offer to put on events for me. And it seemed like a shame not to come over and celebrate the launch of the book in the US. So I was absolutely delighted that I did that. So I did that in March and it was trip of a lifetime. It was such an opportunity for celebration and bringing together so many people that I have worked with online for so long uh, in real life was just a real joy. And even people who just found me on Instagram or, you know, even had people had bought the Australian edition of the book and paid that, you know, ginormous shipping fee and had been really, really looking forward to, to having that real life experience. So that happened already in the US. And I feel like anyone who is uh, wondering about doing a book tour, I can't speak of it highly enough. Uh, just to have that ritual of, of 
of being able to celebrate something that you've poured so much love and time and energy into. Um, and then being in the US, I found out that the book is being reprinted only a couple of weeks into the launch in the US. So that was really, really fun to actually be in the US and to be part of that you know, celebration. It felt real for me at the time. So then the UK uh, is not, I would absolutely love to come to the UK. I would love to tour UK and Europe. But again, you know, looking at the realities of, of, of my life, it's just, it's a pretty big undertaking to, uh, to organize and, and fund a trip um, to, to again, the other, the other side of the world. So I'm planting the intention and, and if I'm meant to be there, then I trust that circumstances will conspire to allow that to, to happen. So if anybody wants to organize a UK or Europe book tour, this is your moment to uh, reach out and provide this opportunity. I'm Ezzy Spencer on Instagram. <laughs> Send me a message. <laughs> now you know where to find her. So what are you working on now? Are you working on another project? Are you taking another break at the end of it? What mm. What are we going to talk about next time you're on? I'm looking for the little preview. Oh, yeah. So I... Oh, there's so many, there's so many things, to be honest. It's just, it's interesting because I've been back now a little over a week from the US. So it feels for me that, that the launch part of the, of the book coming out has now come to a close and I will continue to show up for the book and to promote the book throughout 2018, I would imagine, um, and into the future potentially as well. But I feel like that promotional piece for Lunar Abundance is, will stay live throughout the next, um, you know, nine to 12 months. So I need to create space and to keep that space in my schedule, I suppose, for that. It's important for me to keep talking about it as people keep discovering it. On that next front, though, I traditionally have been someone who has had so many ideas and so much enthusiasm for the new thing that I've leapt into the new project. And I actually did that last year when I did, um, when, when after the Australian book came out, I very quickly launched into writing a second book and a third book, actually. I launched into writing another nonfiction book and a fiction book last year. And I had to learn- I remember that. Yeah. Um, and a couple of things happened in that process. One is I actually did write a second nonfiction book and I decided not to share that one because it was very personal and I felt in a way that I needed to, to write it. Um, and then I also needed to feel okay not to put that one out or not to pursue any kind of uh, publishing deal for that one, which was actually my original intention for it. So course correcting of an intention was, is certainly something which is, is totally accepted and indeed celebrated in the lunar abundance practice. And then the novel that I started to write is, is still ticking along in the background. But at the time I described it to you as a passion project, which may take me a decade and it remains a passion project, which may take me a decade. This time around, um, what I feel is really important is to create space. And so whilst I have so many ideas coming through, in fact, I, and I'm, I'm getting a pretty clear idea of what my next nonfiction book will be, instead of jumping into writing it, I am allowing myself to just remain in that 
space between the projects. I have a very good friend, Rachel McDonald, who writes a lot about the space between and um, and the and the transition point and how important it is to really honour those transitions. And I feel like this is something which I am experimenting with in my life really for the first time is to just be okay with there not being a clearly defined project that I'm working on today, but to know that there's one coming down the pipeline, which feels really big and really juicy. And I don't need to start working on it ASAP. I feel like I need to be in the yin at this time, to be in the mystery, to be in the unknown and to feel okay with um with with not distracting myself with the next with the next thing which is what I think I did on a very subtle level uh last year after after the lunar abundance book came out in Australia so yet again you're following your own practices um, (laughs) as you're moving forward it keeps inviting me to yeah well it keeps working it keeps working the process just keeps working depending on the situation So I'm really thrilled that we got to have this conversation. And I think so much of this process isn't really discussed the way that you feel when you go between books and how it feels to move on from the first book to another one. And I'm so glad we've explored this topic because I think it's something maybe people haven't had the chance to think about before. So thank you so much for sharing your insights and for talking about this process with me today. Oh my goodness, it's just been a real delight. I feel like I I would have I would have loved to have to have heard more about this after the book came out in Australia last year because I think I did and this was probably an example of when I did hear there's a you know in the in the trade people will say you know you've really got to have a book you know a new book coming out every two years if you want to be uh you know have that long-term career as an author you need to really stick to the publishing schedule and and I guess I was a little um you know I was very I was very receptive to that at, at at the time and it also fit with my desire to 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 keep going um particularly I think as creatives you know the there's no shortage of inspiration um but sometimes actually taking a little bit of time and allowing yourself to to rest in that in between space is even when there is the inspiration coming through is actually going to result in a more um you know maybe a more mature expression of your of your work when when the next one comes through so maybe you keep writing timeless book after timeless book that way. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. That's part of it all, isn't it? It's, it's the not knowing, um, but the, but the trustering, the trust, trustering, the trustering, the trustering and the surrendering to the That's process. That's a new word. We've made up a new word. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's very much how it feels. It's not. It's not necessarily a comfortable place to be, that in-between space. It's, it's oftentimes um, challenging on many, many levels. But I think it's worth hanging with it, it sounds like. And I hope everybody else learns to hang with it a little bit and see what happens because maybe something new that you hadn't imagined will come out of giving just a little bit of space in the in-between. Every single time. 
Well, I can't wait to hear what happens next. So we'll have you back when, when the next one comes through and then we'll get to hear about, about how it all went. Oh my God, me too. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hey, I want to pause for a moment and suggest a candidate for you to try if you sign up for the Audible trial at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible. A listener told me that she listened to and fell in love with Megan O'Connell's book. And now we have everything which was discussed on the show today, because it's read by the author. And there's nothing I love more than a book read by the author. She loved the book so much in audio that she immediately went out on independent bookstore day and snatched up a physical copy. So if you're looking for something to use your credit for when you sign up for your trial at Audible, may I humbly suggest Megan O'Connell's and now we have everything. My second guest today is Megan O'Connell, the author of And Now We Have Everything on Motherhood Before I Was Ready. And everyone who listened to episode 100 last week heard Mary Laura Philpott's impassioned um, support of this book and how excited she was about it. So I, of course, did what I always do when Mary Laura Philpott gets fired up about a book. I got my hands on it immediately and decided I needed to have Megan on to talk further about the book, because something that comes up a lot among people I work with and in discussions with authors is the delicate balance of writing when you're writing memoir or anything that includes people from your actual life. So I wanted to have Megan on to discuss this topic. She lives with her family in Portland, Oregon. She's a freelance writer, and you can find a lot of her recent work at Longreads and in New York Magazine's The Cut. She co-edited the personal finance website, The Billfold, from 2013 to 2015, and before that, she worked in tech. Um, She's on Twitter and has a tiny letter, both of which we will link to in the show notes. So I am really, really excited to have Megan on. I think she might be a little freaked out by me to to be honest, because I was so excited about this book. I was like shouting about it on Twitter, on Instagram, everywhere. Everybody's got to read this book. I'm giving it to everybody. So Megan, I'm sorry if I came across as a stalker, but I really am this excited about your book and so delighted that you took the time to talk to us. So everyone, please enjoy my conversation with Megan O'Connell. Hi, Megan. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Well, it was funny because I had uh, Mary Laura Philpott from Parnassus Books on last week and she was raving about your book. And basically, she has never steered me wrong. Yeah, I love her. She's, she's the best. Great. So uh, she comes on every yeah. few months and tells us what she's reading that she's really excited about. And uh. she told me that your book was essential reading. I was like, you need to say no more. And I got my hands on it. And I swear to God, I, I cannot. I could not stop reading it. I couldn't stop reading it. That's good. <laughs> good sign. Definitely. And I think the thing that... I wanted to ask you about, because a lot of the people I work with who are working on books and who are interested in writing always have this question come up, particularly those working on memoir, saying, I'm really afraid to write this story because I'm afraid it's going to be upsetting to the people in my life, or I'm afraid it's going to be hard. And you were brutally honest about your own process in this whole thing. And I thought you owned it really well, that it was your process. But I wondered about how it was right in the, both in the writing process and as the book has come out um, and how you navigated writing about real life events that are pretty fraught. So fraught. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was just, I knew that this was my kind of secret document for at least a year, you know, and 
kept telling myself, like, I don't have to publish this. I can just write and it, you know, just be completely honest in the first draft. And then I can always go back and have a kind of personal reckoning be like, do I really want this in the world? <laughs> and, um, and then, then I kept taking each thing deeper because I knew I was like, okay, I'm not actually at the core of whatever I'm trying to write about, whether it's breastfeeding or postpartum sex or, you know, mortality and, so, you know, um, and then, you know, you just sort of know when something feels a little dangerous, but just to give yourself permission to keep going and tell yourself you don't have to publish it, you know, you don't have to put it in the world. And then I just, you know, you have control over how you say it. It feels sort of, what comes up feels kind of out of control at first, but, you know, there are many drafts and many opportunities to take things back or, you know, finesse them. And uh, I think once, once I got to certain things, it was just so undeniably true that it felt important to leave there. And, uh, but, you know, it's definitely been a process of showing it to people that are in the book and especially my husband, Dustin, um, you know, sending him drafts. And I think like I wrote about, um, like our sex life after a baby. And that was probably the most, the chapter I was most worried about, you know, like <laughs> humiliating him. And, uh, but he, he's always just kind of given me carte blanche and, which I want to, you know, I love, but I also don't want to take as like the last word, you know? And so when he, when he read the final draft, he was like, well, I couldn't really make myself finish reading it, but I think that's a good thing. This probably means it's, you finally nailed it. So Amazing. Well, I think I, at that <laughs> chapter in particular, I was like, oh, I mean, the interesting thing is, as somebody myself who doesn't have biological children, I have a stepchild. Oh, yeah. And yet I was actively convinced through the entire book that if I did have a baby, it would be exactly the same as your experience, <laughs> given that my brain works the same way and the kind of thought process. And at one point you you said there was something about um, that you had this fear that you would drop a knife and it would fall in the wrong way. Oh my God. And yeah. we have we have cats and I perpetually have had the exact same fear. So just this flash of like a uh, vision of it. Oh yeah. Happening. It's just like yeah. flying out of your hand and they're dead and there's, oh. yeah, no, it's <laughs> yeah. just the worst. So I was like, I trust everything she is saying is the absolute truth <laughs> because I relate to so much of this. And so in that particular chapter, I was really touched by how you really were open about the whole thing. And it's a shame he didn't get to the end because I felt the end was incredibly redeeming. It was like, keep going, buddy. It's going to be okay. I know. I'm like, don't worry. I'm the bad guy at the end, you know, <laughs> or, you know, not the bad guy, but sort of owning my part in it. Yeah. I felt that you were really pretty, um, honest with, but I don't know. I mean, I wondered, I'm like, is she being too hard on herself? Because you were, <laughs> you're pretty brutal with yourself in this book. And it, it made me yeah. really um, feel an incredible amount of affection and almost protectiveness towards you, you know, as the reader. Yes, yeah, it's, it's weird now, because I feel like a different person than that time period, you know, and I think getting it all down and, you know, it's been four years since I had my first son. And um, it, I just feel like a sort of compassion for myself then, you know, it's like a different person, like, oh, Oh, honey, <laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a thing that's that's fascinating to me about which nobody really talks about or or maybe 
-hmm. sometimes people do, but they don't talk about it so openly and certainly not in books. It's like everybody tries to make everything so Instagram ready and pretty and styled and look at the attractive baby's foot just peeking in the corner with my, (laughs) you know, beautiful breakable china. And and you were like, no, no. And I found that so reassuring. And I'm at what point did you actually start writing this book after having had the baby? Like, how long did you yeah. give yourself before you started exploring the material in writing? Well, the birth story was the first thing I wrote. And I think that's part of why it's kind of more visceral. And I don't know if I'd be able to write that now. You know, I don't I don't know how I... I was still in it. I was. It was like three months postpartum. Oh, wow. Yeah, it felt... I mean, yeah. I've been in the room with a friend who gave birth. And this chapter was more yeah. real to me than actually being in that room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just... I really wanted to capture like the mindset, which for some reason, I don't know if it was just because of the adrenaline or like how hard it was so that it's like this sense memory that stayed with me, you know, but, um, but yeah, I wrote the birth story first and was surprised how, what a, like how, what an amazing writing experience it was. And it was just so satisfying. And I'm like, I didn't think I wasn't planning to write about having a baby or anything, you know, going into it, but it was, and I sent it out as a tiny letter, as a newsletter Mm. after I wrote it. And I was so scared, you know, it seemed like so fresh and I didn't want people like criticizing my writing about this day in my life. That was like this critical, you know, juncture. Um, It was too vulnerable, but, um, but it ended up, you know, it was just people I knew that wanted to read it in the tiny letter and they responded. So like, I just felt like I finally could articulate it in a way I hadn't been able to and um, felt like seen in a way I didn't at the, you know, at the birth itself. And so, you know, my friend Emily wrote back and she was like, congratulations, it's a book. Oh, nice. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I was like, oh man, I don't know, but I do want to keep writing about this. Like I, you know, I was like, I want to write about pregnancy and breastfeeding. And and once the birth story, then Long Reads published it. And so then I heard from a couple agents and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. And that was when my son was six months old. And it took me, you know, another six, almost a year to write the book proposal. And then another year to write the book and then another year to edit it. So, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's like, as my son has grown up, it's kind of, you know, when I started writing it, I had no idea how it would end or what I was writing towards. But kind of over the couple years that I was doing it, you know, got more perspective and the book kind of changed as I went. I was really curious in reading it. It's interesting that you say you were three months in because that's about when you started going to the cafe again, right? Yeah. So I'm like, is that what you were writing? I was so curious about what you were writing when you first got out of the house. It's totally yeah. I mean, I was a blogger, like for, uh, you know, like a freelance personal finance website editor and um but then I would kind of sneak away and try to spend an hour here and there you know getting this epic thing out of me (laughs) it's kind of meta like you're reading the book in which you may have been writing the book (laughs) yeah and it was you know it was kind of bizarre because I'd be like with my baby wanting to get away from him so I could write about him. (laughs) you know (laughs) but uh but it was it was cool you know I I've always, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer or, you know, secretly considered myself a writer and written. And this was the first time where I felt like real urgency and like I had something to say. And so I just, but I think in a way it was possible because 
I didn't have that much time and there was like this external obstacle, you know, and that made, instead of the obstacle being myself or like my brain and procrastination, <laughs> it was a baby. So that kind of, I don't know, it was like a force that I had to conquer that kept me going. I think, I don't know. No, absolutely. I mean, I think it does, it clearly changed everything. I mean, that much is, is clear. And I think, (laughs) you know, it does for everyone. And it's interesting that you had this fear, like, am I ever going to write a book? And that this was what (laughs) allowed that to happen or finally kind of pushed it out the door. Yeah, it just kind of gave me the kick in the butt, I guess. Not that, you know, I would recommend having a baby just (laughs) get some writing done or anything. But yeah, no, there were clearly other motivations for doing it. (laughs) But yeah, I am pregnant again. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, I'm due in June. And I'm like, well, I wonder if I'll get in that headspace again and get some (laughs) work on my novel time. Maybe who knows, you're going to write all kinds of stuff with this one. Yeah, it's weird to start something now being like, my brain is going to change completely in a few months. So I don't know. I mean, how we'll do you, see. how are you preparing differently? Because there was a, there was the thing yeah. that I thought was really fascinating is like, of course, you can't possibly know what it's going to be like before it happens. And there was all of this sort right. of anticipation and this is how I might feel. But of course, it's all hypothetical. Yeah. And then you're writing about like, I wish someone had told me, but there's, <laughs> you know, it's sort of impossible you know, I, I wonder, I'm like, if I read this book, would I have felt any differently? Or would I still would have clung to my like aspirations? I don't know. Um, but having been through it, yeah, it's totally, it's, I mean, it's a lot better, <laughs> I think, knowing what I'm getting into, but also kind of scary, because you don't have any like, overly romantic notions about what it's going to be like. Um, but in a way that feels, I don't know, I feel safer, just being more realistic and um, like I I just wrote an essay about scheduling a c-section this time which was definitely like a mental journey towards that but um, and I you know I've been going back to my therapist that I went to postpartum I've been just like making like strategies like okay your brain is I mean she doesn't say this to me but you know how I think of it is like okay my brain is kind of broken when it comes to hormones and um you know, I can just expect that things will be bad. And if they get really bad, I'll, you know, get on a prescription, you know, antidepressant. And, you know, if, if I hate breastfeeding, I'll just feed him formula. You know, it's just, it's much more realistic. It's like working with what I've got instead of hoping that I become this like perfect mother. You know, I don't have any delusions, really. Yeah, I think there was a lot that I was really moved by. And I think I see this in all of my friends with with babies. It's like, there's so much intense writing that comes at your face, basically, when you have a baby. And everybody has an opinion and everybody wants to share it. And I, I appreciated your kind of debunking some of that. It's wild to just read it now. Because, you know, when I was pregnant for the first time, you don't know, you're just desperate for information and you just kind of cling to whoever sounds the most confident, but also often those people are the ones that are, you know, they're trying to sell you something or, you know, like, I don't know. I don't trust anybody that's like kind of absolutist about like what is the best for everybody. Um, it's so specific and, um, you know, there's like two people, you and your baby, it's like these major variables, but, um, so reading it now is kind of shocking to hear, um, you know, like Dr. Sears saying, oh, if you go on a date, then you're going to want to go on a vacation and then you're going to leave your baby for two weeks and then he's not going to know how to love anyone. What? You know, it's just crazy. <laughs> I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but 
it's it's really um, extreme stuff that you think is just not knowing because you know, you haven't been immersed in this culture yet. You know, it's just really has nothing, no bearing to do on on my experience, at least. I don't know. So it's so nice now to be like, I know what matters to me specifically versus wondering what is the best thing I can do. It's more just like, what can I manage and like what really matters to us? And, you know, the rest, you just kind of get by. <laughs> exactly. How did it um, how did it help to like work your way through in the book? Like, did you find yourself kind of adjusting or figuring things out as you were writing them down or were you pretty clear before writing them down? Oh, no. Yeah, I definitely like figure things out by writing it, you know, um, writing therapeutically kind of gets a bad rap. But it's, not, you know, I wasn't writing, you know, it's more of a like a, you know, craft thing. I wanted to write something good. But I was, I think the motivation to write for me is so much of like, I can't figure this out. I have to like sit and write 3000 words about it or whatever. You know, that's just how I work with everything, I think. And if I knew going into it, like what my deal was, or, you know, like the secrets of why breastfeeding is so fraught, I don't think I would be motivated to write it, you know? I think that's true. I think it's yeah. even, I think it wouldn't be such such an intense career choice or an intense process that people yeah. wanted to engage in if it didn't change you at all in the process. Yeah, it'd be kind of boring, I guess. Yeah, but it's interesting <laughs> that you're right. Like this thought of like therapeutic writing being in a separate category as if there is any therapeutic yeah. benefit you're somehow not doing as good of a job. Right, Similar right. to all the parenting but, I mean, literature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're supposed to be a professional who writes this with cool detachment and full knowledge. Right, like an authority. Exactly. Yeah. I do not feel like an authority on anything. <laughs> well, I think that was something also that was so appealing about the book was it was not that you didn't sound like an authority, but that your experience was so well described for yours, that it was so specific yeah. that I felt really easy to generalize in it. Yeah, I was worried about that. You know, like so many of my friends had amazing like home birth experiences or breastfed for two years and it was wonderful. And so I, I didn't want to write in a way that made them feel like I didn't, I was judging them or something, which is like the opposite of, you know, where I was coming from. So I've been glad that I haven't heard that much as the books come out, that it's not like offending people who have had a different experience. You know, I'm hoping it like leaves room for things. And it's just like my personal, you know, how it went through my brain and my circumstances and all that stuff. I assume there has to be a large swath of the population that looks at the literature and the presentation of motherhood and birth out there yeah. and feels left out because. Right. And, and yeah. that this book is for those people who feel like, no, I didn't sit on a stool and look like a ballerina <laughs> and catch my baby. You know, like I was like, oh, my God, right. what? I can't imagine. That would not be me. No way. Um, and so for everybody yeah, who feels important. left out by the literature that's out there, I think this will feel yeah. like a warm hug and a, like everything that they wanted from the parenting literature. So for so. anyone who's offended by your book, there's plenty of books out there for them, I think. <laughs> that's true. And they had a good experience. So yeah. That's, they can just, they don't need to read books about it. They can just live their lives. <laughs> so one question I had was reading it, there was a lot of discussion earlier about trying to figure out the name and feeling like, oh, the name is not going to work. And I wanted it to float out of the sky and, and to appear <laughs> yeah. and to, or like, you know, I don't know, appear subconsciously in a halo above his head, you know, when you saw his face. Right. Did you ultimately <laughs> just pick one? 
because you chose not to share what his name was in the rest of the book. So I assume you don't want to share his yeah. name publicly, but I'm curious about the process yeah. of actually deciding what the name was going to be. It ended up, it was like, we had this name we loved that it was kind of really common and we we're like, oh, we want something more unique or we'll get something more creative. And, um, but at the end of the day, that was kind of like who the baby was in my head. And I was just second guessing it, which is sort of a theme of the book of second guessing. Um, so we we're like, no, that's just his name. And, finally and I remember when we decided that we just started crying and it was like that's I'm gonna cry now thinking about it but yeah like that's him and uh and now we're back at the same juncture with trying to figure out a name for this baby who's another boy (laughs) (laughs) the same name conundrum I know yeah it is hard I think and it's it's I don't know the whole thing is very fascinating to me that that you get to pick for someone else the the name that's going to yeah. stay with them their whole lives unless they you know oh up gosh. and change it and become share or you know somebody who's oh, yeah I wonder how that would feel to the parents if you change like, it no I don't like it I I am fascinated by that with this with the sort of how names show up and the stories that people have of how they how they come about yeah. but there's also such trends in them now too so it's it's a whole thing it's very like yeah revealing about people I think which is why it's so such pressure <laughs> well I think that's the theme is like there's so much pressure and it's like it's hard enough already I hope that people read your book and feel permission to at least dial back the pressure on themselves a little bit I hope so at least yeah feel less bad about feeling bad that's Definitely. So you said you're working on a novel. I'm curious if you have anything that you can share about that before we before we wrap up. Um, It has nothing to do with babies and pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) It's more of like a uh, about being young. And uh, I used to work in the tech industry, so it's a little bit about that. Oh, fun. We'll We'll see. see. Well, we'll see if baby number two kicks that (laughs) kicks that novel out the door. Yeah. (laughs) Oh God. Yeah. Well. Lots of luck with both the birth and the novel. And thank you. I look forward to, to, to reading it when it comes out. Thanks so much. <laughs> okay, bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram, where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing. So, how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right! Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. GreenLake.